Amen. Thank you, ladies. Great song, great thought. Uh, you know, I think sometimes we undervalue what it means for someone to be saved. Uh, the Father who sent His only begotten Son to suffer, shed His blood and die, I'm going to tell you, He takes a great interest in every sinner that's saved. Amen? Amen. Go ahead and get in your Bible to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one near you. It's got a hard black cover. We'll be on page 915, page 915, Revelation chapter 19. We began a few weeks ago in a 21-message Sunday morning series that I have uh, called Learn of Him to Flee from Idolatry. Paul told the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 10.14 to flee from idolatry. And those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are commanded to flee from idolatry, which simply means that there should not be anyone or anything that we admire, love, reverence, or worship more than the God of the Bible, God our Creator, Jehovah God. Last week we talked about our Creator manifesting Himself to mankind as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three who are one God. And to reject the Trinity of our Creator is to commit idolatry because God is who He is. And who He's revealed Himself to be, whether we can fully explain it or not, doesn't matter. God has revealed Himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. We do not believe in three gods. We believe, like the Scripture teaches, in one God who manifests Himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. We talked together about the threefold nature of God manifested in creation, leaving everyone who rejects God as being without excuse. We talked together about the threefold nature of our God manifested in those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we saw how a completed human being is a body, soul, and spirit. And we encouraged one another, as we concluded last week, admonishing one another to, admo to honor the Son and honor the Holy Spirit in the same manner we honor the Father because God lives in us, if you're a believer. <laughs> Paul told Corinthian believers, though there be many that are called gods, there is but one God. And though there is one God, the world of Moses and the Old Testament was filled with many that were called gods. There was a pantheon of gods in Ur of the Chaldees when Abram left the land to go where God sent him. There was a pantheon of gods in Canaan when Abram arrived there. Uh, there was a pantheon of gods in Egypt when God sent Moses to deliver the Israelites from slavery. And there were many gods in the promised land when God sent his people there 40 years later. But hear me, sincerely believing 2 plus 2 equals 5 doesn't make it true any more than believing that Baal and Ra are God. It is not the sincerity of our belief that makes something true. It is consistency with the written words of God that makes things true. And though there are many purposes for the Bible, the most important purpose is for God to reveal Himself to man. The complexity of our creation bears witness to a great Creator, but we cannot learn what God is like from the creation. If we want to know what our Creator is like, we must look in the Bible where He reveals Himself to us. But because there are so many beings that people claim to be God, and because of humanity's prideful tendency to create a God they like, I want to spend a few months of Sunday mornings just talking about who God has revealed Himself 
to be. I want us to learn of him so that we can flee from idolatry. And I'm pretty sure I echo the desire of most here this morning when I say I want to believe and follow and love God as He has revealed Himself to be to us. And anything other than that is idolatry. Amun-Ra was the most powerful god in the ancient Egyptian pantheon of gods. He's often depicted as a human body with a falcon head and a sun disk above him. Amun-Ra was a combination of a more ancient Egyptian god named Amun, who's the alleged god of the air, and Ra, who is the alleged god of the sun. According to Egyptian mythology, Amun-Ra was the creator, and he traveled in a flaming boat as the sun across the sky each day, and then through the world of the dead by night. Amun-Ra was alleged to be the most powerful of the ancient Egyptian gods. But ancient Egyptians, believing Amun-Ra to be the creator, did not make it true. The creator, the one true God, the God of the Bible, Jehovah, he's not just powerful, he is all-powerful. God is omnipotent. If you're able to stand, if you would stand this morning, please, in honor of the Word of God. The title of my thought this morning is, There's Nothing Too Hard for God. There's nothing too hard for God. Revelation chapter 19, we begin in the Word of God in verse 4, where it says, And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the voice of many waters, and as a voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Thank you, might be seated. The scene of our text is heaven. And here we are given just a bit of a glimpse into a moment in heaven near the end of the coming seven-year tribulation. Heaven is a real place. Heaven is not just a state of mind. Heaven is not linking our consciousness with the consciousness of humanity or the universe. Heaven is a unique place. It is a unique place where Jehovah, our God and Creator, dwells. It is the dwelling place of angels. It is the dwelling place of those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have gone before us. The throne of God and the throne of the Lamb are in that place. And this particular moment unfolds as God destroys the rebuilt city of Babylon, the capital city of the coming Antichrist. The coming capital city will be the center of the Antichrist religious and economic and political power that God allows the incarnation of Satan to have for a season. For three and a half years, he will appear to be a man of peace. And then for the final three and a half years, he will reign with one terrible, vicious rule among men. God is going to destroy that future seat of the Antichrist in one fell swoop. And this destruction will leave men mourning the loss of their prosperity as they look into the distance at the flaming rules and smoke from that city. Now, the destruction of that city 
the event which will one day be greatly mourned by men on earth, understand that same great event will be celebrated in heaven. And that's what happens in verse 4. It says, And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. For the most part, man has never highly valued that which God highly values. And though men will love that future city because of its power and its wealth and its ungodly entertainment, God will finally uh, get fed up with the unbelief and their persecution of His people, the lies they tell, and the immorality of that future city. God will be fed up eventually, and He will destroy it. Now, the verse 4 glimpse we got, that's not an earthly glimpse. That is a glimpse into heaven at that same moment. These 24 elders are redeemed men, unnamed to us, but known to God for their faith and character while they lived. Understand that though everyone gets to heaven by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God is not a communist. Everyone is not the same in heaven. Uh, Heaven is good for everyone that goes there, but God is not the same. And these 24 men who are redeemed from among mankind have specially lived for Him in life, and they are honored by allowed to be seated with Him around His throne. These men will cast their crowns at the feet of the Savior and praise God with this great manifestation of God's power and God's justice over the Antichrist and his domain. But I like it that it will not just be great men who will praise the Lamb of God in that coming day. Look at verse 5. It says, And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God all ye his servants, and ye that fear him both small and great. By the way, I do not believe that God considers anyone great because they have great wealth, great looks, Great lands, great prominence, or great gifts. I don't believe God cares about any of those things. I think God counts people great who find the will of God and choose to do it, whatever His will may be in their life. And though few among us will have opportunity to be great among men because of our lack of giftedness and opportunities, hear me when I say every human being can be great in the sight of God. In fact, if you're here this morning and Jesus Christ is in your heart, you will be among the people who are going to speak up here in just a moment because this call from God's throne to praise God is responded to by all in heaven, both small and great. You say, what will they say? Verse 6, and I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters and as the voice of mighty thunderings saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. You see, the combined volume, heart, and spirit with which this phrase of praise is spoken will more than rival the loudest clap of thunder and be more deafening than the roar of the most powerful waterfall with the combined voice of hundreds of millions of saints. We will together say, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And in their praise, we read one of the ways our Creator has revealed Himself to mankind. God is an omnipotent God. To be omnipotent is to be all-powerful. 
To be omnipotent means there's no power greater than the power of God. It means there's nothing too difficult or outside of the ability of our Creator to do. Should He decide to do it, God is omnipotent. Someone said to make our faith deep and strong, we need to recover the lost sense of awe of God. We need to be taught afresh the fear of the Lord. To recover that lost sense of awe and create a feeling of reverence, we need a fresh vision of God as the omnipotent and sovereign Creator. The Lord reigns and does as He pleases. Let the people and nations tremble. Most of us would agree that in America, God has been brought too low by some who have overemphasized the wonderful gentleness of our Savior and failed to teach people about His holiness and His great omnipotence. But understand, in heaven, the omnipotence of God will not be de-emphasized to make God more relatable to us. We will together, all with one voice, together acknowledge the great omnipotence of the one true God. There's a reason Jesus said in Matthew 19, 26, with God, all things are possible. That reason is God is omnipotent. There's a reason the angel Gabriel said to Mary, for with God, nothing shall be impossible in Luke 1.37. There's a reason when Abraham was speaking, he said, is there anything too hard for the Lord? In Genesis 18.14. There's a reason when Jeremiah prayed, he said to God, there's nothing too hard for thee. Jeremiah 32, 17. The reason for all of those statements is the practical application of heaven's praise. Hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. That reason is God is omnipotent. And anyone who believes in a being they call God, who is not omnipotent, is committing idolatry. And we're taught to flee from idolatry. And so this morning, what I'd like to do for a few moments is make some observations and applications of God revealing Himself to us as being omnipotent. Please first turn just back a bit to verse 19 of the same chapter. Here's number one. Because God is omnipotent, it is futile to fight against God. Because God is omnipotent, it is futile to fight against God. Notice why humanity gathers in the Megiddo Valley someday for what people call the Battle of Armageddon. In Revelation 19, 19, it says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together. Why would they gather together? To make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. By the way, who is him who sat on the horse? And who is this army that they're gathered together to fight? Look at verse 11 of the same chapter. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he thus judge and make war. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. Who is this man on the horse, this one on the horse? And His name is called the Word of God. That's the Lord Jesus. Verse 14, And the armies which were in heaven followed Him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of His mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it He should smite the nations, and He shall rule them with a rod of iron. 
And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath in his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. By the way, I get that that is not the common image of the Lord Jesus. He's a gentle Savior. He's so patient and kind. But understand, there is a line in the sand. And there's a day coming when Jesus will not just manifest His grace and kindness and long-suffering to usward like He is today. There's a day when the wrath of Almighty God will be manifest when He comes back in power and glory. And that assembly of mankind will be there to fight against Him and the armies of heaven. I mean, think about that. How foolish to assemble to fight against Christ and the armies of heaven. And though it is certainly foolish and certainly a a sure defeat, understand there will be multiplied millions of people who will be willing to do that in this coming seven-year tribulation. It's kind of like the three-year-old who's angry at their parents in some decision, who shakes their fist up and says, come on, I can take you, and the parent doesn't even bother. That's man. With all of his advanced weaponry pointed toward heaven, that's man saying, okay, uh, Jesus, I not only am not going to believe in you, I'm going to fight against you and fight against the armies of heaven. Now anybody with any sense, as I said, can see this is a futile fight and a foolish battle to be involved in. Now most of the time, man fighting against God is not as obvious as it will be in that future day. Listen, Satan's fight against God is doomed to failure. Satan is a creature. He's a part of creation. God is omnipotent. Man's fight against God is doomed to failure. And because God is omnipotent and man is not, man cannot and will never prevail. You see, man is fighting with God about the Bible being the Word of God. Man is fighting with God about the morality God established in His Word. Man is fighting with God about all kinds of things, and fighting with God is a sure loss. Man is fighting with God about Jesus being the only way to heaven. Man is fighting with God about there being one true God instead of many gods like man would prefer. But fighting with God is a sure loss. Man is fighting with God about what really matters in life and whether or not we should be focused on laying our treasure up in this life or laying our treasure up in the next one. But fighting with God is a futile battle. But it isn't just them. It isn't just man. There are people in this room this morning fighting against God. Now probably you would hesitate to describe what's going on that way. The fight is not as obvious as the battle of Armageddon, the final battle, so to speak, of those seven years. But there's still a real battle going on between you and the omnipotent Creator. It's still real. I mean, there's people here this morning and you're fighting against God for humbling yourself to call upon Christ. You know good and well that Jesus is the only Savior. You know good and well He loved you. He died for you. He shed His blood for you. He rose again from the dead for you. You know He makes a promise that whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord should be saved. You know that and God has spoken your heart and yet you still, for whatever reason that makes sense to you, you shake your fist at heaven and say, God, I will not. I will not humble myself. I will not repent. I will not believe. I will not do that. 
You're going to lose that fight. Others here have yielded in that battle. And you have chosen to humble yourself to call upon the Lord Jesus. But you're fighting with God in some area of your life. You know some things God has clearly told you you should do. You won't do them. You know some things God has clearly told you to stop. And you refuse. Hey, listen, I don't need to know the specific things going on in your life. I'm worried enough about the specific things going on in my life. And the fact of the matter is, is that if you're here and you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you know what God wants either to you to do or what He wants you to be or where He wants you to go or what He wants you to stop, and if you just sit there saying, you know what, I'm not going to fix that, I'm not going to pay any attention, I'm not going to do any better, understand, you're fighting against God. God's not going to change His mind about what He wants. And the fight against God is always futile. And unfortunately, in the end, it robs us of the peace and joy and satisfaction that our God wants to give us. What would you fight about how to handle your money, your marriage, his church, your ministry for the Lord? Why would you fight? You think you're going to win? What would you fight with God about being baptized, about joining and serving in his church, about living a morally pure life? Why would you fight with God about living a sober life? Seven times the New Testament says, be sober. I don't care if Anthony Munoz calls himself a Christian, has done wonderful things when he advertises Modelo beer. That's an ungodly thing to do. We are told to be sober. Why would you fight God about making prayer in the Bible a priority? Why would you fight God about being kind? Why would you fight with God about being warm? Why would you fight with God about being friendly? Do you, do you realize the kindest, gentlest people who just firmly dig their heels in and say, I will not, ought to be Christian people. None of us will ever win a single fight against God because God is omnipotent. It's a story told about a young boy who was traveling by airplane plane to visit his grandparents. And unfortunately for this boy, he happened to sit beside a man who was a scornful atheist. The little boy had some material from his church. He was reading that day on the plane, and there wasn't any of the atheist business. A scornful atheist thought he'd make fun of the little boy. And by the way, that's what scornful people do. Scornful people make fun of and belittle people who are trying to do what's good and right. And the scornful atheist said, young man, as he opened his wallet, you can tell me something God can do, I'll give you this $20 bill. And the boy thought for a moment, he said, mister, if you can tell me something God can't do, I'll give you all the money in the world. God is omnipotent. And it is futile to fight against him. And so why not just yield to the omnipotent God who loves you, gave himself for you, and has a plan for your life and mine that is way better than anything you and I could plan for ourselves. Secondly, please go in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah 33. 
I said first because God is omnipotent. It is futile to fight against God. Here's secondly this morning. Because God is omnipotent, we can never ask God for anything that's too hard for Him. Because God is omnipotent, we can never ask God for anything that is too hard for Him. If you don't have this verse highlighted or underlined in your Bible, it should be. This is one of the great prayer promises of the Bible. In Jeremiah chapter 33 and verse 3, God challenges us when He says, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and shew thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. God is omnipotent. Nothing is too hard for Him. So He challenges us to call upon Him so He could show great and mighty things that are beyond your ability and mine to do. Just because miracles and signs other than the Bible and salvation are not the way God typically operates today, it does not mean that we shouldn't ask God for great and mighty things, big things, miraculous things. When's the last time you asked God for something big? When's the last time you asked God for something that was absolutely impossible from a human perspective? You and I ought never fear asking in the dark of night for the life or healing of ourselves or a loved one. Never outside of God's ability to take care of. We ought never fear asking God for financial help when we've done what we can do and need God's intervention. We ought never fear asking God for anything too big or too hard for Him. Listen, all the gold and silver belong to Him. The earth and the fullness thereof and they that dwell therein, they all belong to God. God is omnipotent and everything is within His hands to give or to withhold. And though God doesn't always do for us the great things we ask, it is never because He is incapable or because He is disinterested. For the most part, we don't have greater answers to pray to prayer because we don't pray much. And if we do decide to pray, we don't have more great answers because the things we ask for, the Bible describes as things we consume on our own lust. In other words, we're not asking for great and mighty things that are truly for the glory of God, great and mighty things that are truly for the good of someone involved. We're asking something that is more selfish-oriented. I challenge you this morning, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, to call out to Him in any seemingly impossible situation. Because the omnipotent Creator challenged us to call upon Him. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not yet saved, call upon Him, call upon the Lord Jesus to miraculously change you and save you and forgive you. He's in the business of changing hearts and lives. And if you are saved, you need to call upon Him in the situations of your life. Listen, all of us, if you're not facing them today, you will soon enough face some situation that is beyond your control and beyond your power to fix. But nothing is beyond the power of our great God to fix. And there is no person who's gone too far for God to reach or God to change. The hearts of kings are in the hands of the Lord. And how much more all the rest of humanity. 
Darlene Diebler Rose was a missionary to New Guinea. Uh, we have her biography in our bookstore. And if you haven't been in our bookstore for a while, I challenge you to go in there, buy something, and read it. One of the greatest things you'll ever do, especially if you're younger, read biographies of great men and women of God. They will bless and challenge you. Hers is in there. She was imprisoned in a Japanese concentration camp during World War II. Conditions, not surprisingly, were unbearable. The food rations were barely edible and almost non-existent. On one occasion, she looked out of her window in her cell and she caught a glimpse of another prisoner who had found favor with the guards and this other prisoner was smuggling a small branch of bananas under her sarong and rose. She was literally starving. Here's how she describes her reaction. She said, everything inside me wanted a banana. I could see them. I could smell them. I could taste them. I got down on my knees and I said, Lord, I'm not asking you for a whole bunch like that woman has. I just want one banana. She says, I looked up and pleaded, Lord, just one banana. And then I began to rationalize, how could God possibly get a banana to me through these prison walls? There was more of a chance of the moon falling out of the sky than one of the guards bringing me a banana. I bowed my head again and I prayed, Lord, there's no one here who could get a banana to me, so there's no way you could do it. Please don't think I'm not thankful for this rice porridge. It's just that, well, those bananas look so delicious. And the next day, Rose heard footsteps of an approaching guard. She was weak from malnutrition. She struggled to her feet. She begged God to give her the strength to give a proper bow to her captors because they beat her whenever she didn't bow with the proper respect. And as the cell door opened, she saw the familiar face of the commander. While many of the guards had brutalized her, the commander had always been kind. He commented that she didn't look well and turned to leave the cell. As the door closed, she was struck numb with the realization she'd forgotten to bow. She prayed this, Oh Lord, why didn't you help me remember to bow? They'll come back and beat me. And then she heard footsteps again, and she trembled with fear as her cell door opened, and she was not greeted by an angry guard, but with a massive bunch of bananas flung inside. And the guard said, these, these, They're yours from the commander. <laughs> and locked the door behind him. She said, I sat... In stunned silence and counted them, there were 92 bananas. As Rose thought about what had happened with those bananas, she concluded what I needed to do was to link my impotence with God's omnipotence. God is omnipotent. There is nothing too hard for the Lord. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. Let me ask you this morning, are you praying like God is omnipotent? Do you pray for any difficult things? Do you pray for anything that's difficult with faith that God not only can, but that God will? Are you thinking about our Creator and Savior in terms that are too small for who He is as you pray and consider your life? Oh Lord, thank you for the food that I had the money to buy. Hey, listen, it's a wonderful thing to be thankful for. But listen, are you asking for anything that is beyond your human means to do? Are you asking for anybody who is beyond your human means to reach? Are you asking for anything that takes God to be involved? Listen, almost everybody who walked in here this morning would agree with the statement, God is omnipotent. But the vast majority of people within the sound of my voice do not treat him like he's like that. 
Whose heart do you need changed? Whose soul needs to be saved? What, inter- what intervention do you need God to make that only God can do? God is omnipotent and He has challenged and called you and I when He says, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Are you calling? Which gets us to our last thing. Number three, though Jesus set aside some of His glory take on flesh to die for us. He did things that only an omnipotent Savior could do. A few weeks ago, we talked about Jesus and those who knew Him best claimed that He was God manifest in the flesh. Deity. The deity of the Son of God. Because Jesus was 100% man and 100% God, we would expect the account of him to be filled with both. Times and places where what he said and did reflected that he was a man with perfect faith in God. And other times that reflect the fact that he was also God manifest in flesh. Can you not see him standing in the back of that boat, filling with water in the midst of a storm and waves that were so terrible? That man who fished for a living on the Sea of Galilee feared for their lives. Can you not see him stand up in the back of that boat and say, peace, be still. Calm. Clear. (laughs) The act of an omnipotent Savior. Can you not see him standing outside Lazarus' tomb? A faithful man who had been dead four days in the grave, wrapped up, embalmed like they handled corpses in those days, and decaying. See Jesus stand outside that tomb in the loud voice and say, Lazarus, come forth. Who but God could so call a soul back from paradise to this body in this life? The words of an omnipotent Savior. Imagine him defying gravity to ascend to heaven. Defying nature to turn water into wine. Uh, Listen, defying death to rise from the dead. When you and I call upon the Lord Jesus to forgive and save us, understand, we are calling upon an omnipotent Savior. There is nothing too hard for God. No life so far gone, but what Jesus can change it. No situation so difficult, but what he can fix it. Who but God can change the dead spirit in an unsaved person to be born again, to become body, soul, and spirit in the image of our thrice holy creator. May God help you and I to link our impotence to God's omnipotence. God is omnipotent. If you'd quietly stand, if you're able to stand.